We're going to turn to our Bible reading now, which you'll find in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Before the summer, we were working our way through this second book of the Bible, and uh, uh, here we are back again, picking up where we left off. We're going to read from Exodus 12, from verse 29. Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. These uh, verses are printed in the diary that you received on the way in um, if you don't have a Bible to hand. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also." The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover, No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Amen. Thank you, and please do turn with me back to Exodus chapter 12. Um, I suppose it is in some ways an alarming opening verse to read, uh, the start of 
recommencing a series. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn. Uh, There's lots for us to think about here, isn't there? Uh, But to help us get to what this passage is telling us, I want you to think about something. Um, have, Have you ever thought about how many words you waste in a day? I mean, it is hard to believe, but I have been told that there are occasions when a superfluity of words pervades my speech in trying to communicate a forceful idea to an often unwilling congregation. Uh, Sometimes I use too many words, Uh, too many adjectives, uh, clumsy sentence structures. Uh, But there's more than that to wasted words, isn't there? We all say things daily that are of no consequence. Ideas that come into our heads and out of our mouths, punishments threatened to children, rewards promised, neither of which come to pass, plans that are made and then changed. Some of us think through problems by talking about them, and many of those words will prove to ultimately be of no real consequence. And for us, well, what does it matter? But this is a crucial way that God is different from us. God never speaks words that are of no consequence. God never speaks words that are of no consequence. I'll give you an example. Back in the book of Genesis, you would read the story of Abraham and his beloved son Isaac. Uh, God wants Abraham's heart to be revealed and so commands Abraham to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. And we read that Abraham sets out to obey, and just at the last moment, God intervenes and stops any harm coming to Abraham's son. Now I know, says God, that you fear God. God had not wanted to see Isaac harmed, rather to see Abraham's faith confirmed. But that's not the end of that story. Because God then provides for Abraham a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. Why is that necessary? Surely everything is finished now. Why do we need to see a ram sacrificed? Well, it is because God never speaks words that are of no consequence. The command to give a sacrifice was given, and so the sacrifice had to be made. God provided the sacrifice. But this is to show us that God's words always count. None of them fall to the ground wasted. Well, we're in the book of Exodus, the story of how God freed His ancient people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt and made them His own. And here in Exodus 12, in all of the details, God's words, God's promises are being fulfilled We must learn here that God keeps His Word. God keeps His Word. And we see that it doesn't matter what kind of words God speaks, He keeps them all. Because here in our passage, we see God keeping His words of judgment and His words of salvation. Words of judgment and words of salvation. So we see that, first of all, with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This 
in chapter 12 is the end of a long, drawn-out series of episodes of God in meeting with Pharaoh through Moses. Pharaoh is the king. The Israelites are his slaves. The Israelites, their cry has come up to God, and God has committed to deliver them. And he sends Moses to be his representative. And up to this point in the story, God has delivered nine strikes or, or nine plagues against Egypt. He's turned water into blood. There's been a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague of flies. Their livestock has been killed, plague of boils, hailstones, locusts, darkness. And throughout, the command has come from God to Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And even though these plagues fell, we're told, just as the Lord had said, Pharaoh continued to resist. And here in chapter 12, Pharaoh finally breaks. Way back at the start of God's encounter with Pharaoh, he had said through Moses, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You'll find that in Exodus 4. And then in chapter 11, the warning was given about midnight. I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. I mean, this is troubling stuff, isn't it? And when we come to chapter 12, where we were reading today, we're shown that none of what God had said was empty. Verses 29 and 30 of our passage describe exactly those things that God had said would happen. God's threat of judgment against Egypt was real. The timing of it, about midnight, the breadth of it, there was not a household in Egypt where there wasn't someone dead, the severity of it, and the pain of it, the great cry throughout the land of Egypt. But we need to know that God's words of judgment are not just for effect. They are not just there to keep people in line. No, God's words of judgment reflect the kind of being God is. He is pure, and He is holy, and He is just. He is loving towards His people, and therefore He will protect His people, and He will come against those who would harm them. I mean, what else would you expect from a loving Father? Now, we live in a society where we don't tend to speak about God in these kind of terms. And it's not because our understanding of what the Bible says has changed but because we have this remarkable tendency as human beings to, only be, to, to not believe the things that we don't want to hear. But God has recorded this in His Word that we might take notice of it. I mean, refusing to believe a diagnosis just because you don't want it to be true is sheer foolishness, isn't it? 
And so is the denial that God would ever speak words of judgment, because here He is speaking them and fulfilling them. One day, Jesus' followers asked Him, in effect, why do bad things happen to people? Is it because they are more sinful than other folks? And part of Jesus' answer went like this. You'd find it in Luke 13. He said, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' point, in part, is that you cannot simply draw a straight line between bad things happening and how bad a person must have been. Because when it comes to the question of sinfulness, without a change in direction, we are all heading for ruin. We are all sinners. We all stand guilty before God. And unless we repent, unless we turn away from sin towards God, then we're lost. These are not empty words. God keeps His words, even His words of judgment. And Pharaoh learns this the hard way, the hardest possible way. He had said no to God. He had then tried to negotiate God down. He'd said, well, you can go, but you've got to leave the women and children behind. And then he'd said, well, you can go, but you've got to leave all your livestock behind. Well, you can go, but you've got to stay within the confines of Egypt. But Pharaoh was like a man who goes into a car dealership with a rusty old banger, no money, no credit rating, and expects to leave with a luxury car. He has nothing to negotiate with. And Pharaoh, now, his son dead, verse 31, all he's got to say is go go, be gone. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks as you have said. The time for negotiating is all done now, isn't it? He sees. He learns the hard way that God keeps His Word. But it's not only words of judgment God keeps. It's words of salvation. This is why God met with Moses. In chapter 3, he says, I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them and to bring them out of Egypt to a good and broad land. The promise of judgment in Egypt was something that threatened every family, including the Israelites. But God gave them instructions for how to be kept safe from judgment. They were to slay a lamb, sprinkle its blood on the door frames of the house. And God promised that when He saw the blood, He would pass over those homes. The innocent, spotless lamb was slain, and on that basis, God withheld His hand of judgment. The Israelites were spared. God kept His word. God had promised Moses that not only was He going to bring the people out of slavery in Egypt, but they will plunder the Egyptians. They would walk out the door carrying the wealth of Egypt in their arms. And at the time, nothing seemed less likely. They were slaves with no rights. They owned virtually nothing. And yet, 
What did we read in our passage here in verse 36? The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they ask, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. There's emphasis here on just how rapidly all of this took place. You notice in verse 33 how the the Egyptians were urgent in begging the Israelites to leave. Um, And then we saw that the Israelites bred, um, there's all this mention of the leaven. Now, now leaven is in effect yeast used and, and had to be allowed to work through the dough to help it to rise. Well, the message here is there was no time for that. Pick it up before the leaven is in there and get out of there. There's no time to wait for your, for your dough to prove. And Moses, who wrote the book of Exodus, gives this summary in verses 40 and 41 that the Israelites had been in Egypt for 430 years and they left, verse 41, on that very day. And he doesn't mean it was on the 430th anniversary. He means they'd been there for all that time, and they left in a single day. That's the idea. They'd been there all that time, and in one day it was over. All the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And what an operation. I mean, look at the numbers in verse 37. 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Um, There is some debate about the numbers. We don't have time to go into that. I'd be very happy to speak to you about it over tea and coffee. Uh, Moses' point is that every one of them came out, and it was, um, and God had made them into a nation while they were in Egypt, and they all came out in a single day. The passing of 430 years is evidence of how God keeps his words. When God gave his covenant to Abraham, he said, know for certain that your offspring will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and they shall come out with great possessions. This is the promise that was given to Abraham and for hundreds of years seemed to just gather dust in the drawer. But God keeps His Word. His promise, though to our eyes it seemed to have stagnated, for God it was still live, still waiting His timing. Or even later in Israel's history, the prophet Isaiah would rise up and would promise that a Savior who would suffer in the place of His people to save them, bear away their sins, would come. And it was a promise that seemed to lie gathering dust in the drawer for 700, 750 years until Jesus came. The Bible would say, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God delivers clear promises We read one about the word of judgment, of the reality of perishing because of our sin. But God does not only give us words of judgment, He gives us words of salvation. In John chapter 3, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that, my friends, is a promise to take to heart. That's a promise to come before God and to claim, I know that you are a God who keeps His words, 
and I bring this promise and I claim it. Because I believe in Jesus, you have promised to give eternal life. That's how the promises are to work. Now, intertwined with the retelling of the rescue of Israel from Egypt are instructions that are given for the remembrance of this significant event. I mean, the rest of, uh, of, of Israel's history is really shaped by this amazing event where they were rescued from Egypt. And it's instructions for how to remember the Passover when the Lord passed over them when He saw the blood of the Lamb. And this isn't the first time this pattern has appeared. If you were to read the first half of chapter 12 again, you have Moses jumping between, um, here's how God delivered them in the night of the first Passover, and here's how you're to remember it. Here's how God delivered them in the night of the first Passover, and here's how we're to remember it. And the principle behind it actually starts in verse 42. Um, the Israelites went out of Egypt in the dead of night, and it says there, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It seems like a slightly strange thing to say, a night of watching by the Lord. But it has this idea that it was the Lord Himself who stood vigil over His people as they were safely brought out of captivity. God had personally overseen their escape from slavery. And as a result, still in verse 42, this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Because He stood vigil over us, we will spend that night looking to Him. You see, that the Passover had happened was not something the Lord's people were to leave in the past. It was to shape them, fashion them in a meaningful way throughout all their generations. So, having known God's faithfulness to keep His Word, we see here God's people build their lives upon His Word. God's people build their lives upon God's Word. They would celebrate the Passover every year. They would select a spotless lamb they would cook it, they would eat it together as a family. All who were in the house were to eat it together in remembrance that they sheltered safely because the lamb was slain. And there's a detail that arises here that wasn't mentioned before. You see it in verse 46. And you shall not break any of its bones. Now, there's no certainty as to why that would be important. Maybe it speaks of the kind of care with which the lamb was to be handled, even after it had been killed and cooked. But actually, the full importance of this detail becomes apparent later. It points us to God's ultimate salvation plan, to His provision of a true sacrificial lamb that can take away our sins. Listen to these words from John's gospel. This is how he records the death of the Lord Jesus from John 19. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This Passover lamb was a picture of the true lamb of God who shelters God's people from God's judgment. These words of God are here to point us to Jesus. And just as these grateful Jews were never to forget the Passover lamb, but to shape their lives around its remembrance, how much more, how much more for the believer in Jesus Christ? When we come to understand what what God has done for us, how we owe everything to Him, how else could it be? When we've come to understand that God has given promises, He's given words of salvation, and He has been true to them, He keeps them, what else could we do but shape our lives to build them upon God's Word to be shaped by God's Word? We've known the trustworthiness of God's Word to save us, and so we want to live lives that are shaped by His trustworthy Word. This is why we spend so much time meditating on God's Word here when we gather together, because none of God's words is wasted. None of God's words is inconsequential. If we're going to know Him, then we need to know this. The Christian who has no time for God's Word is a walking contradiction, because this is where Christ's promises to you are found. You won't find them anywhere else. But a life shaped by gratitude to the Lamb is actually a definition of what the Christian life is. A life lived in gratitude to the Lamb. A life that trusts God to keep His Word. So even when it feels like, and for some of you this is no doubt the case, when it feels like you move from crisis to crisis, and God feels distant at times, but His promise, His Word, is to never leave you or forsake you, Christian, He keeps His Word. Even when we seem to let God down repeatedly, and we wonder if we're making any progress as Christians, the Lord has promised that forgiveness is already yours in Jesus, and that He is making you more like Christ day by day. Come to Him again, knowing that He keeps His Word. When you try sharing the good news about Jesus with others, and it consistently gets nowhere, Remember that God has promised that when His Word goes forth, it accomplishes His purpose. Remember that He's told us that faith comes by hearing the Word of God, so we don't give up. Why? Because we know that God keeps His Word. Just like for these ancient Israelites, 
a very obvious way that God's Word shapes our worship is in those times of remembrance of the Lord, particularly in what we're going to do in this service in a moment when we observe the Lord's Supper. Even as we meditate on these verses in Exodus 12, we're preparing our hearts to remember the Lamb of God who was slain for us, to express our gratitude to Him, our confidence in Him. It's so precious that we do this. Well, one last thing. As we read those instructions given to the Israelites about how they're to remember the Passover, did you see that there were restrictions placed on who could share in the Passover? Uh, Verse 43, no foreigner. Um, It also says 45, no hired worker. Well, they can keep the Passover, but they first need to be circumcised is the message here. They first have to take the sign of the covenant that was first given to Abraham. The restriction that is outlined here is not about someone's nationality. It's not about their ethnic background. It's about their spiritual status. Verse 48, the restriction is this, no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Now, to our ears, that probably sounds very narrow, doesn't it? Maybe we should be a little bit embarrassed that God would speak like this because it doesn't sound terribly inclusive. But if that's how we feel when we read this passage, we're we're actually reading it wrong because these words are written as an invitation, an invitation. Who can come and claim the promise of God to deliver those who shelter under the blood of the Lamb? Who can come and do that? Well, God is saying here in these regulations, well, whoever will come. Whoever will come, whoever will take God at His Word, whoever will take upon them the sign of belonging to God, belonging to His covenant people, it's for them, whatever their nationality or ethnic background. And this is so easily missed. Yes, God delivers His people in Exodus 12, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, right at the heart of it, is an invitation. And we see in this passage that even in Egypt, some of the Egyptians knew this invitation because the crowd that left Egypt, see it in verse 38, they're described as a mixed multitude. It was a mixed bunch that came out of there. Some Egyptians heard the words of God and submitted to Him, and they marched out as well. And this is God's great purpose here in Exodus and right throughout redemption history, to make Himself known to the world and to say to the world, come, be one of my people, be part of my family. Now, we live now in the era of the new covenant. Jesus has come, and those who come to Him in faith are given a new heart by the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell within. And the sign that people have entered into this relationship with Jesus is no longer circumcision, but in fact is baptism. Baptism is no small thing, friends. It's the outward mark of one who belongs to Jesus. And as we remember Jesus Christ now in the breaking of bread, well, we similarly would say this is something that's for Christians, for people who have faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, this is not for you. But don't hear that as 
first of all, a restriction. It is an invitation to come to Jesus, to any who will come, who know their need to be right with God, to have sins forgiven, then come to the only Savior and find those things. Be part of God's family. Build your life around the Lord Jesus who gives and who keeps His Word to you. Amen. Let's pause there.